This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Trust has become an issue during the COVID-19 pandemic. A recent survey reveals more than 60% of Canadians say COVID has permanently eroded their trust in government, federal and provincial, either a little or a lot. Provincially, the mistrust is highest in Alberta at 47 percent, but Ontario is up there, too, at 35 percent. Nearly half have lost trust in provincial chief medical officers of health, and a third of Canadians have lost trust in their neighbours. Bob Comsick filled in for Libby Snymer on Victoria Day Monday and got reaction to the findings from our Zoomer squad, abbreviated on the holiday, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, CARP's Chief Membership Officer and Vice President at Zoomer Media. It basically comes back to what do we have the right to expect, given what they know and what they're dealing with. I don't think distrust is a function of some utopian. Why didn't they get every single thing right? Why didn't they know more science than they knew at the time? Everybody understands this is unfolding. This is fast changing, especially the degree of knowledge is is increasing. So I think there's a lot of latitude before you get into the distrust uh, area. But that said, I think the the flip-flops, the bad communication, the contradictory decision-making, uh, it's really been a hot mess. And I think that the public health profession will probably have an agonizing reappraisal uh, when all this is over. Bill, what about your thoughts on uh, some of those things we touched upon there to start? Yeah, well, tr- trust, of course, is a very difficult uh, thing. And when you don't when you don't understand the communication, when the information you keep getting is different every time, of course you're going to uh, uh, lose trust or at least lose confidence in what you're hearing. And, and as David said, that's been uh, the, the problem. I think uh, our public health officials right across the country uh, need to take some more communication courses and understand uh, communication and you know, always giving every little detail each day and each change of, of science is not good communication. What people want is the big picture. They want to understand how it affects uh, them, and they want to know how, how it's going to be carried out in their particular community. And this has been totally between the, the uh, health officials and their communication and the disagreement they're having with governments governments moving the opposite way to what often the health officials are uh, suggesting, of course there's going to be uh, uh, confusion. And when there's confusion, there's distrust. More than half feel that Ottawa's border measures have been ineffective. And we know that's also what Doug Ford thinks of here in Ontario. Almost three quarters want the government's three-day mandatory hotel quarantine for air travelers extended 
to those who cross by land, and about 6 in 10 say travelers ignoring the mandatory quarantine should face stiffer penalties, including time behind bars. Bill. Well, this is, uh, this is really interesting, you know. It's almost a, a NIMBY situation, and not in my backyard. It seems when, when the rules personally affect people in their own expectations, they're less likely to want to follow them than when they see them as for the general good and for everybody else. And the case of, of borders, as in some provinces, and the case of not being able to travel even to their own cottages and cottage country has has brought it close to home to them and they begin to see how they think they can get around the uh, the rules and still follow the general guidelines and protect protect themselves and it becomes very difficult to know whether they're distrusting what they're being told or they're trying to find a way around it so they personally don't have to follow the rules david well, I think that's completely true, but I also think that, um, you see, what are the rules and what did they ask the public to do? And I think that's where a lot of the distrust comes in, because what they were asking the public to do very rarely made any sense and was quickly uh, contradicted by other things. And they were so all over the map in what they were asking the public to do that I think that's where it, it spilled over. It became sort of toxic to the whole topic, and it spilled over perhaps into unfair criticisms also of the science. David Kravitz, CARP's chief membership officer and vice president at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. We're still more than two weeks away from the tentative start date for the Ford government's three-step reopening plan. If all goes according to the proposal, step one will begin June 14th with restaurant patios allowed to reopen and outdoor gatherings expanded from five to ten. Restrictions over the three steps will be based on COVID-19 vaccination rates and other health indicators with at least 21 days between each stage. On holiday Monday, Bob Comsick spoke with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at Ryerson University's School of Occupational and Public Health. No question, it was something that we've been waiting for for a while. I mean, outdoors was always uh, a much better choice, you know, by orders of magnitude than indoors for almost anything you can think of. And so I'm really pleased to see that uh, people are encouraged to get outside in the fresh air. I mean, goodness, how would you want to miss that? The other good thing is that uh, we haven't seen that really before, is that incentive that's built in. You know, going from step to step, it's sort of regulated by uh, how well we're doing, uh, how, how the vaccines are going along, and, and the other indicators as well that are in there. In other words, it gives people a, a chance to work towards something in bite-sized bits. Worried this holiday weekend might send the numbers in the opposite direction, or are you confident that this downward trend is going to continue? Well, Bob, starting back with... Uh, with a lot of stuff in the United States uh, back around this time last year, we began to see that whenever you get a gathering, whether it's a motorcycle club or whether it's a Mardi Gras or Mother's Day, you name it, 
about uh, seven to ten days afterwards begin to see the spike in cases. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it happens uh, within Canada around this time as well. But let's hope it doesn't. People are generally following this. I mean, we're all complaining. Everybody is complaining. We want to see the end of this. But we're generally following it. And as a result, as a result, all the indicators are coming down. Every one of them is slowly, cautiously coming down. But I'll tell you what's the, what's the topic of conversation in back rooms, and that is the, 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 the variant known as the 1617, especially the number two version of that. That seems to be... Uh, seems to have the ability to to transmit even much more rapidly than the 117, which which really caused the third wave in Canada, and it, it that even that one moved up to about in 89, 90 percent of the isolations in the United Kingdom. This one, this new one, this one has the ability to 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 transmit much faster, possibly 40, 50 percent even faster than the other. So it's a it's a race against time. If we can get the vast population immune, uh, mainly through vaccination, then we're going to win it. If we slow down, start hesitating, then this other variant can take. Who wants a fourth wave? I mean, I didn't want to say that on your program. We don't want a fourth wave, but let's let's squash this third wave right at the bottom. Ontario, Dr. Sly has announced that it's resuming use of the AstraZeneca, but only as a second dose. So starting this week, those who got their first between March 10th and 19th eligible for the second dose. What do you make of the decision to uh, to resume AZ? Well, the decision really coming along and using it as a second dose, there seems to be uh, there seems to be all the all green lights for that one. There doesn't seem to be any reason to hold that back at all. The data we've been waiting for from the Oxford team in Britain, uh, that's being released slowly. We've had the first about a week ago to show that when you mix vaccines, uh, you get a slightly increased set of what we might call uncomfortableness, you know, the soreness in the arm, the feverish for a day or two. That extends a little more when you mix the vaccines, but no, not serious. Nobody went to hospital in the entire trial. Certainly none of the uh, the uh, blood clots are seen. And we're waiting now in about a week or a week and a half's time for the second bit, which is just how effective is it when you mix the vaccines. The early indication is that it might even be more effective, like like throwing a, a one kind of blanket on something and another blanket on the top. Well, the first one doesn't cover, the second one will, uh, that kind of a principle. Let's wait until the data are in for that. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at Ryerson School of Occupational and Public Health. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, reflections one year after George Floyd's murder. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Tuesday was the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, an incident that had a ripple effect into Canada and around the world. He was killed by Derek Chauvin, who was on duty as a police officer that day. Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes until the black man could no longer breathe. 
It was a horrific event captured on cell phone video, which ultimately led to Chauvin's conviction for which he will soon be sentenced. Libby Snymer was joined by our Tuesday strategy panel to reflect on the anniversary. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister. Yeah, you know, um, in Ontario, we actually commissioned a report on carding, on police relations by Judge Michael Tulloch, and he finally released his report in 2018 talking about much of the cultural changes necessary in the police force, uh, trying to find ways to limit their powers or prevent arbitrary or random stops that infringe upon people's rights or people's concerns. I mean, George Floyd obviously was a much greater issue, and the impact in Canada as well as the United States is tremendous. I mean, there is going to be a cultural change in the force. There are going to be more body cameras. There's going to be calls to change a criminal justice system, to provide some more accountability on behalf of the police. And and now, with the cell phones that are revealing much of what has occurred over the last number of years, that's really put our our sights at what is taking place. And, you know, authoritarian, um, you know, guys that are, you know, feeling themselves all-powerful, and um, racism is underlying that, too. So, I, I, I'm certainly sorry, of course, of what has taken place. And George Floyd's, uh, I mean, I guess they're going to release a judgment next month. Um, I believe the majority of Canadians and people in the U.S. welcome uh, the opportunity to find justice here, uh, but we have a long ways to go. Yeah, and Karen, it's interesting that just a few weeks ago, when the government made that terrible mistake and they were talking about uh, much more enforcement of COVID rules, that's the first thing people thought of was uh, shades of carding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think that um, had the trial gone a different way, I think that the mood would be very different than it is now. I think there is a sense that um, perhaps reforms that need to be in place aren't moving fast enough. And you know, certainly when we think about what's happening in the military, there had been a call for a citizen review body to look at sexual assault charges in the military, and that was slow to get off the ground, still not being done. And so we see it. We see that these large institutions that are, quote-unquote, law and order or um, rank and file and um, have a certain way of operating, they're very, those cultures are very, very hard to change. And it, you can't, you know, and then, and then I think there was also the mistake of defunding the police, which nobody... However you feel about the police, I don't. I think there's very few people that would want it defunded because ultimately we do rely on the police for our our protection. And so, you know, I think that there is incremental change. I think that we're seeing it in different places and at different phases. But I think, you know, had that trial gone a different way, um, maybe we'd be in a different place too. One of the things that you know, I think they've started to deal with, you know, that came out of all of this. Maybe police are not the best people to deal with, you know, mental health crises. Yeah, I think so. But again, it's that's a, that's a, to be candid. I mean, that's a tricky one, right? Because if there is a call um, in the midnight hours or in the late night hours, and there is an episode of someone who is having um, some mental health issues, and it's presenting in a way that's causing danger to themselves or the public, you're still going to call the police. Or and because you're not going to call a social worker at, at 1230 at night to come out and de-escalate a situation that has potentially complicated outcomes. And so, 
you know, it is it is easy to say that yes, the police should have more support, or maybe they shouldn't be involved in those in those types those types of calls. But it's, it's practically difficult to not have them be. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario finance minister, marking one year since George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There's been a dramatic increase in anti-Semitic attacks here in Canada and around the world, especially during and since the latest round of fighting between Israel and Hamas. Community leaders have unfortunately grown accustomed to vandalism in the wake of Mideast tensions, but this time there are not just many more of them, but they are often violent, bold, and brazen. In the U.S., we have seen people beaten up by mobs shouting threats of rape. Politicians at every level have condemned these hate crimes, but that does not seem to be a deterrent. Libby was joined on Tuesday by Simon Granite at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, Michael Levitt, president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, and Michael Mostyn of B'nai B'rith, Canada. We have been following it. B'nai mean, B'rith ourselves have been putting together an audit of anti-Semitic incidents since 1982, simply to show the trend lines how anti-Semitism is faring within Canadian society. Um, we've been seeing an uptick in the last number of years. Last year, over 2,000 incidents in Canada were documented for the third year in a row, showing an elevated level. But what I can say right now, and I'm, I know my colleagues will agree, because the entire Jewish community is concerned about this, and all three of our organizations have been working very closely to combat this scourge, we, we're seeing something different. We are seeing... Um, an increased level of violence, of uh, threats to our community, based on um, really it came from anti-Israel rallies that were taking place, many of which were in contravention of local health guidelines, COVID-19 restrictions. Um, and we saw flags um, with uh, swastikas on them, praise of Adolf Hitler, um, and, um, and genocidal uh, <laughs> calls for uh, not only the destruction of Israel, but targeting individual Jews. And that's where it's showing these sorts of threats have been crossing the line from anti-Israel rhetoric into attacks on individual Jews. And um, this is something that our community is Mm -hmm. very concerned about, this elevated level, because they feel threatened in a way that they haven't felt before in Canada. And that's dangerous. And we need to do something about it, because if it gets too bad, you can never put a genie back into the bottle again. Michael Levitt, what's your take on it? Uh, Does it come from uh, seeing these things happen in the United States? I mean, you know, it is a a long distance from from graffiti and vandalism to this. We've seen uh, a virulence to the anti-Semitism that's playing out. Um, on the streets of Toronto uh, and across, not just Toronto, but as, as your first clip showed, cities across the country. And it's deeply, deeply concerning. I mean, M- Michael mentioned the rallies that I consider to have been a vector for hate, signs invoking Hitler, flags being burned, rhetoric around, um, you know, a, a death to Jews, death to Israel, um, becoming common refrain, deeply concerning. But I'll tell you what else is incredibly concerning. And that is social media. Um, social media has been a, um, has been fanning the flames 
as has the lack of um, coverage uh, that has been balanced and accurate on mainstream media. And this is, again, a source of deep concern. As a Canadian Jew, I look around and I really, um, I, I have tremendous concern. Um, and I'm also deeply saddened by the relative silence that has existed in terms of calling it out. This is a time when the Jewish community in Canada needs our allies to speak loud and clear, condemning anti-Semitism in all its forms. And uh, I, I think it's been muted, and I think uh, we need to hear more and more and more of our leaders speaking unequivocally on this point. Simon Granite, I mean, what more should they be doing? We have seen leaders like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, the leader of the official opposition, uh, Premiers Ford and Kenny, uh, Mayors Tory and Iveson and, and Plant uh, speak against this. But, but really, uh, anti-Semitism, what starts with the Jews, doesn't end with the Jews. And it's, it's important for all Canadians of goodwill to come together um, to combat this, uh, this age-old hatred of which we're seeing, seeing a spike in right now. And, and the other message that I would give to your listeners who are aware of this situation that's going on is to stay strong and stay hopeful because, um, you know, groups like ours will be pushing back against the anti-Semitism and we will be calling for consequences against uh, perpetrators who are violating the rules of law in this country. It simply cannot be allowed to stand and it has to be called out loud and clear by all of our elected officials. Simon Granite at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Michael Levitt, President and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, and Michael Mostyn of B'nai B'rith Canada. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the past week. Rosie in Toronto phoned about a rise in anti-Semitic behavior. I was very, um, very disgusted um, by one of the responses by the president and vice president of the U.S. Um, They responded with tweets. And um, I know social media is an acceptable form of communication today. However, uh, when it comes to something as serious as um, the anti-Semitism that we're seeing today, I, I believe that a stronger response um, was really in order, and I, I found that to be very, very disappointing. I also would like to know, in terms of here at home, um, our own Prime Minister um, and Premier of Ontario and Mayor on all levels of government, what are they doing proactively and reactively to protect the Jewish community of Toronto. Uh, you know, it's not enough just to talk. We, we need more than just strong words. We need strong actions, and we need to know that there's a form of protection for the Jewish community that's filtering down from the prime minister to the, to the provincial leaders to, to the mayors of the cities. 
Jason in Toronto called about an erosion in government trust during the pandemic. This was a massive failure on behalf of the federal liberals and the provincial conservative government um, because this this was a national emergency that required a national response. But both were too far too concerned with scoring political points on each other, and that affected us, uh, us citizens, uh, in terms of our health, our businesses, our families. And that was that was a massive failure. Um, this required a national response. What we have is we're coming to an election two elections coming up soon, and we can't be voting between two people who both failed us on a massive level. And that's kind of my point at this point. We can't be afraid. It's like, oh, we have to vote liberal because we're dealing about conservatives, um, and they're going to screw up again, so we have to vote for them. So we need to really have some soul-searching as as citizens to see what happens, and this is a major issue. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who says the unrealistic cost of long-term care going forward should get us thinking about other ways of taking care of our older population. Given the magnitude of the cost that we're talking about, and also given the preference of many seniors, especially following what happened in the institutional care in the pandemic, uh, I'm wondering, I had wondered if any thought was given to um, home care alternatives, which is what more and more seniors want. Just to reiterate the point, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear, given the magnitude of costs associated with building an institutional care, that alternatives are going to need to be considered. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.